This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is around the year 1550. In a dense stretch of jungle in Southeast Asia, the morning is alive with birdsong and the trill of insects. Startled by a crash of footsteps in the river, a pair of parakeets burst from a wild papaya tree. A group of men and women wearing cloth sarongs tuck the fabric around their hips to keep it dry as they splash through ankle-deep water. A kingfisher flits away with a warning cry. The leader of the hunting party holds up one fist and the group pauses. He has spotted something in the forest. It is difficult to see through the ferns and hanging orchids that tumble down to fringe the river. But the leader, Ang Chan, finds a root out of the water and slips into the forest. Ang Chan is king of the Khmer people, but he's far from the safety of his capital city near Phnom Penh. He's in the countryside, on a hunt for an elusive white elephant, and his attention has been drawn to something deep in the undergrowth. He creeps forward, keeping his footsteps light. Reaching a vast kapok tree, its roots running like silver snakes over the ground, he climbs up onto a bough so he can see over the bushy ferns. Shafts of sunlight penetrate the canopy to highlight details of the jungle. There is something hidden in the foliage. It is huge and gray-brown, much taller than a man, though it's definitely not the elusive beast they've been tracking. Ang Chan's group creeps up behind him, but he tells them to put down their weapons. Then he jumps down from the kapok tree and uses his machete to hack away branches and vines that block his way. His entourage join the effort, and soon they've cleared enough greenery to reveal a tumble-down stone archway as tall as two men. The blocks are weathered to a mottled gray, the color of an elephant, and streaked with orange algae. Ferns and saplings burst from between the stones, simultaneously dislodging the masonry and binding it together. Ang Chan tells everyone to stand back. All that is holding up this structure is a webbing of roots and branches. But he is too full of curiosity to leave it alone. The king peels away a skin of ivy and gasps at what lies beneath. It's a face, carved in stone. He runs his fingers over a nose as big as his hand, curved lips, elongated earlobes decorated with jewels. The face of the Buddha. The white elephant is forgotten in the excitement. The temple is more important. It is the domain of his ancestors, the mighty Khmer kings who ruled over the empire at the peak of its power. Legend says they built a capital of holy places and palaces, surrounded by high walls and a moat, most of which was consumed by nature when the civilization collapsed. But after a century, it seems the jungle has given up its secrets. King Ang Chan has rediscovered the lost citadel of Angkor.
From the 9th to the 15th century, the Khmer kings tamed the tropical environment in order to build one of the largest cities in the world. Angkor, in modern Cambodia, had a footprint far beyond that of present-day New York. In its heyday, it was on a par with the vast metropolises of Baghdad, Constantinople, or Hangzhou. By comparison, London or Paris were mere market towns. But unlike those cities, much of Angkor fell into ruin. Jungle enveloped the intricately carved stones. For centuries, only a small number of religious pilgrims made their way to the site to pay their respects at Angkor Wat, a temple that survived under the dedicated care of Buddhist monks. Though the rest was never forgotten by the people of Southeast Asia, the ingenious secrets of its construction were lost to the forest. A Buddhist legend says Angkor was built by the god Indra in one night. Scholars say it took many phases of construction over centuries, a marvel of engineering. Now we know that Angkor Wat is the largest religious structure ever built, that Angkor City was one of the most populous in the world, and that the Khmer Empire shaped a region. So who were these dynamic kings? How did they raise vast monuments to art, religion, and power? And what caused such a mighty civilization to fall? Were the Khmer destroyed by their own lofty ambitions, or the very nature they worked so hard to control? I'm John Hopkins, and this is a short history of Angkor. The Angkor civilization, also called the Khmer Empire, ruled over a large swathe of Southeast Asia during its classical period. Its territory crossed modern-day borders to encompass all of what is now Cambodia, plus parts of southern Thailand and Vietnam. Angkor also means capital city in the Khmer language, so that is the name given to the metropolis that grows over centuries close to a vast lake called Tonle Sap. But the Khmer people haven't always lived here. Around the year 790, a Khmer prince returns to his homeland after being exiled to Java, the main island of modern-day Indonesia and an important spiritual center for Buddhists. The prince conquers other contenders for the throne to become ruler of his kingdom, called Kambuja. He is crowned Jayavarman II, but for the ambitious prince, a throne isn't enough. It is 802 AD. The king is leading a procession up a steep slope in the Kulin Hills. He is flanked by battle elephants carrying warriors armed with shields and swords. But his musicians set a festive atmosphere, playing a lilting rhythm on score drums, accompanied by a tune from a two-string fiddle, finger cymbals, and bamboo flutes. Soon the procession reaches a brick temple, nestled among the shade of trees. A stream runs nearby. This is a holy place. These mountains are believed to be the home of the ancestor spirits. People have lived here for thousands of years, beyond living memory, leaving behind only rock paintings. The streams that flow down from the hills are also sacred. Many of the stony riverbeds carved with images of Hindu gods like Shiva, so that the waters are blessed as they flow. 
Jayavarman and his group gather in a paved courtyard where a stone plinth stands in the center. The elephants settle and most of the musicians fall silent. A Brahmin priest from India steps forward and summons the king. Speaking in the ancient Sanskrit language, the holy man starts his blessings, marking the king's face with red paste. The people kneel as the ceremony reaches its climax. The king sits upon the stone plinth where he is named Chakravatin, a universal ruler. Now he's not just a king, but also a god. This holy hill temple, called Mahendra Pavata, lies in ruins today, but is recognized by UNESCO as an important heritage site. It is here that Jayavarman declares his independence from the kingdom of Java, which holds influence over the whole region as a powerhouse of trade and religion. Crucially, for the empire that he founds, Jayavarman rejects their Buddhist religion in favor of Hinduism. He starts a tradition of Angkorian god-kings, or Devarajas, a dynasty that will rule for the next 600 years. We know about this initiation ceremony in the Kulin Hills from inscriptions left on the stones. The rest has been lost to time and the environment. Michael Falser is an architectural historian and author of the book Angkor Wat, A Transcultural History of Heritage. This is one of the challenges when it comes to the Khmer culture, that the classical written documents are missing in a sense, because most of them were written on, on, let's say, palm leaves or paper that has not been survived in such a humid climate. And what we know from the deep culture of the Khmer civilization then, when it comes to Angkor, has been written on the stone plinths and the stone lintels and the entrance gates of the Angkorian temples in an ancient script. But again, this is more the viewpoint of the leading elites writing about their accomplishments and praying to God and dedicating it to gods. So what we know about the written scripts written in stone is more a royal dynastic viewpoint of what Khmer should be. But we don't know so much about the daily life of people. Around the year 900, a Khmer king named Yasso Varman decides to move his court to a new site where there is room to build his own monuments. Yasavarman identifies an area of land between the Kulin Hills and the lake at Tonle Sap, which has potential. It is forested, but crisscrossed by streams running down from its mountains. Yasavarman commissions a steppe pyramid to be built on top of a hill overlooking the plain. Known as Bakheng, the monument is constructed in layers like a wedding cake with staircases flowing up three levels to a flat top. Rising from here are five towers resembling lotus flowers. This is a so-called mountain temple, designed to honor the five peaks of Mount Meru, home to the Hindu gods. Although Bakheng is abandoned after only a few decades of use, its hilltop position is unique. Today, tourists often climb up onto the high platform to watch the sun set over the five towers of Angkor Wat. But in the days of Yasavarman, that future temple is still a distant dream. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. For a society reliant on rice production, the streams from the Kulin Hills are a godsend. Irrigation is crucial for agriculture. Yasavarman harnesses the water by constructing a huge reservoir called the East Barai. It's a labor-intensive process of digging out a man-made pool that is over two miles long and half a mile wide. It is naturally filled by the Siem Rep River and filters through a complex series of channels to nourish the land. It was certainly a major, major water system with uh, giant water tanks, which still exist today. I mean, one has no water inside again, it's the eastern one. And the western one, the Barai, is still partly filled with water. One theory is that these Barais were bringing water into the agricultural system, whereas other theories say, no, the Barais themselves were not directly used for agricultural reasons, but they're more related to the symbolic earth water, underground, above-ground kind of relationship of power and God and kings and so on. So more symbolic religious reasons. But in any sense, what we know is that there was a giant water system regulated by small water, waterways into the rice fields. So all this worked in relationship to the giant lake, which is rather close to the area, the Tonle Sap which is important because this lake now has uh, some ecological problems for many reasons, but back then it doubled his size once a year in the rainy seasons and going up and down. And the river going to Phnom Penh, to the present capital, the river changed his directions once a year. And in this very uh, fragile ecological system of water levels and rainy seasons, etc., Angkor could be taking profit of all this richness of soil, water, climate, several harvests of rice a year. And this was on the basis of the enormous wealth. The turn of the first millennium is a time of expansion for the Angkor civilization. Successes on the battlefield see its territory stretch from the north of the Malay Peninsula up to present-day Laos. Each successive Khmer king strives to leave a legacy in the form of monuments. The construction of temples has two purposes, to demonstrate piety and to perpetuate the cult of the Devaraja, or God-King. The majority of homes and civic structures are now made of wood and thatch, but these succumb easily to the brutally humid tropical climate. For landmark buildings, the Angkorians prefer stone which is brought by boat or elephant from a quarry 50 miles away. 
Around the year 1120, King Suryavarman II orders the construction of his legacy, Angkor Wat. It is the largest building yet at Angkor, even though the plain is already dotted with temples built by his forebears over the previous two centuries. Some say the monarch's most famous design is a temple to the Hindu gods, and there are dedications to Shiva and later Vishnu. But temples tend to be orientated to the east. Angkor Wat faces west, which is associated with death. So the site also seems to serve as the king's mausoleum. Indeed, he dies before it is finished. The construction takes almost 40 years and involves 5,000 workers, including hundreds of carvers and slaves. It is simply vast. The largest religious building ever constructed. And visiting Angkor Wat in the early 12th century is quite an experience. One Hindu pilgrim, here for the first time, is overwhelmed by the scale of the temple complex. In the heat of the day, he is regretting his decision to walk all the way around the outside of the walls. The perimeter is almost three and a half miles long, and his feet are complaining. At least there is cool air coming off the moat, a wide body of murky water festooned with blossoming lotus flowers. Eventually, he sees a throng of people up ahead. The pilgrim steps up onto the pale stones of the causeway over the moat. Children run over, selling refreshments. He buys a fresh coconut and tips it up to sip the juice as he crosses the roadway lined with market stalls. Ox carts carry produce and stones, while richer visitors ride comfortably on elephants. The pilgrim walks the 300 meters, wrapped by the temple up ahead. It looks perfectly symmetrical, higher than the tallest trees of the surrounding forest, almost unreal. He passes the stone heads of a mythological naga snake. Two stone lions guard the steps at the end of the causeway. He gets glimpses of the main site that are tantalizing, but he can only make out three towers when he knows there must be five, like Mount Meru. The full view is blocked by a large archway. He hurries inside and is momentarily plunged into darkness. He blinks to make out the famous carved asparas, or voluptuous nymphs, who decorate the walls. In the low light, they almost seem to dance. And then he moves on. His eyes adjust again to the bright sunlight as he steps out into the courtyard. Now he gets the full impact of the mountain temple. His experience has been carefully controlled for maximum effect and awe. Five towers rise up to an incredible height, far taller than the tallest trees surrounding it. Every surface is carved, every stone is perfectly hewn. The walls surrounding him resemble sacred mountains, and the moat outside is the legendary ocean. Angkor Wat takes his breath away. The little that is known about the founder of Angkor Wat, Suryavarman II, is depicted on the walls of his legacy monument. He is shown in a procession, 
sitting cross-legged and adorned with jewels such as bracelets and a waist chain. He's holding an object that appears to be a dead snake, but the meaning of this detail has been lost. Clearly the king is returning home to Angkor in a state of triumph, perhaps after seeing off the Cham people of Vietnam in one of their many battles. These bas-relief decorations are carved so that they stand out from the background stones, giving a sense of realism and movement. In places, they are ten centimeters deep and run for almost half a mile around the temple walls. As well as the exploits of the king, they depict scenes from the epic Indian texts, the Mahabharata and Ramayana. The intricate detail of the bas-relief gallery provides a balancing contrast to the scale of the mighty towers. But how are the workers able to create such a vast temple with such limited technology and in an inhospitable tropical climate of extreme heat and humidity? Well, it was built, first of all, by thousands of slaves. A lot of research has been done where all these millions, tons of stones were brought. So there are giant sites where the stone was brought over, most probably on boats but also by elephants. But the overall decorative patterns were just carved onto the stone surface after the building had been erected. So you would see the whole surface of Akuat was then chipped or carved up to a depth of 10 centimeters. And so this is a, a major work. And uh, all this was made, of course, by, we could call them master masons or carvers uh, being responsible for the bas-reliefs because they are really high art. Zariah Varman II dies around 1150. The construction of his unfinished monument continues. But two decades later, the kingdom is in trouble. A Cham army from Vietnam invades Angkor and seizes the city. For ten years, the people must bide their time and live under foreign rule. But in 1177, a Khmer prince raises an army to oust them. When he is victorious, the prince takes the title of Jayavarman VII. As ambitious as the namesake who founded the empire, he will become known as the Builder King. He was maybe the most powerful king of all of them in the whole genealogy, but also the most ambivalent one in just getting out of control of, of his building program because it could not simply be accomplished. It just was too large. And historians deciphering the genealogies and the agendas of the kings had been describing this uh, very often um, as a moment when the pressure from the surrounding empires so the Vietnamese, what we call the Vietnamese today, the Cham in the, in the southeast, and the Siamese today, Thailand from the west, had been kind of a giant force getting over major battlefields, major battles against the Khmer. So he was very busy with this kind of warfare around him. But on the other hand, he was building more and more temples. And what is also important is when we talk about Angkor as a civilization, as a, a giant urban kind of configuration where hundreds of thousands of people lived. He had also take, uh, had to take care about the giant infrastructure, which has been not only roads, but also the giant water system by tanks, lakes. So his tasks were so demanding that, in a sense, we speculate that all this uh, brought him into big troubles. 
you could not build so many temples, costly temples, and on the other hand, being successful in warfare. So in a sense, all this collapsed rather soon because the neighboring empires put so much pressure on him. Jayavarman constructs another of the most famous sites of the Angkor complex, the walled town known as Jaisoharapura. It is now called simply Angkor Tom, which means in Khmer, big city. The citadel lies two miles north of Angkor Wat. The fortified town is laid out in a square pattern, with each side almost two miles long and surrounded by a moat. Inside are temples, palaces, and elite residences. Its centerpiece is a new temple called the Bai Yon. In a break from his predecessors, Jayavarman loses faith in Hinduism because the kingdom has suffered such a long period of strife. He feels forsaken by the old gods. He turns instead to Buddhism, the religion rejected by his namesake when he declared independence from Java almost 400 years previously. His Bayon temple is made of sandstone, and its distinctive design features towers with huge faces of Buddha on all four sides. Inside the citadel is also a 300-meter terrace of elephants, where life-size animals are depicted in stone, alongside mythological creatures like the bird-shaped Garuda. This long platform may have been used as a viewing stand for elephant fights, rather like medieval jousting. Angkor Tom is effectively the downtown area of a much larger city that sprawls over the surrounding countryside. Jayavarman also builds roads with staging posts so that people can travel to and from the capital in comfort from the outlying villages. In addition, he founds hundreds of hospitals throughout the kingdom. By now, Angkor is one of the largest metropolitan areas in the world, with all the latest facilities. It is famous across the region. It is August 1296, and a young Chinese man named Cho Daguan has just arrived in Angkor. He is a diplomat, a guest of the king, as the Angkor Kingdom is an important trading partner of its northern neighbors in China. Today, Cho enters the citadel of Jaisoharapura for the first time. Being a writer, Cho pays attention to details as he walks past the busy market stalls and dodges ox carts. He notices the official buildings decorated in tiles made of lead, others in yellow-colored ceramics. Carvings or painted Buddhas feature on every column, every lintel. Soon, Cho hears the sound of music and the trumpeting of elephants. Perhaps to impress the foreign visitor, the king is on parade. Along the central causeway, a procession is led by warriors holding shining shields. Next, Troops carry flags and banners, flanked by musicians playing a rousing march on drums and cymbals. There are carts drawn by goats and horses carrying women decorated in gold from the palace. Finally comes an elephant with a king standing astride its back, holding aloft his sacred sword. The elephant, Cho notes, as the beast thunders past, making the stones tremble under his feet, as its tusks encased gold.
The diplomat, Cho Dagwan, stays in Angkor for almost a year. Each day, he keeps a detailed diary. And when he returns to China, he writes a book called The Customs of Cambodia. Published in the late 1290s, the account is the only written source about the Khmer Empire. Although Cho recounts how he was amazed by the walled citadel of Angkor Thom, its temples and palaces are not built with the same level of care and quality as neighboring Angkor Wat. As time passes, the Bayon, with its Buddhas facing in each direction, sags under its own weight. Its carvings suffer from erosion in the monsoon rains. While the earlier construction of Angkor Wat is maintained throughout the centuries by monks, the big city is one day given over to the encroaching jungle. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. In the century that follows the visit of Cho Dagwan, the Khmer Empire goes into decline. Some say the kings stretched themselves too thin by building these ambitious temples. Others say it was the maintenance of the ingenious but labor-intensive water system that wore the kingdom down. Or there may have been catastrophic climate change, perhaps the shrinking of the lake at Tonle Sap, or failure of the rains to support the paddy fields, or the degradation of topsoil that ruined the agriculture. Certainly, the constant conflict with warring neighbors proves costly for the Khmer. Chao Dagwan's journal notes that the entire population of Angkor was at one point required to fight against invaders from a neighboring kingdom of Siam, what is now Thailand. By the 15th century, Siam is watching Angkor with envious eyes. After several attempted raids, they gather their forces and ransack the city after a long siege. The invasion means that 1431 is generally given as the end of the Angkor civilization. But the Khmer people, as they have done so often in the past, move on and establish a new capital. One of the major earthquakes, political earthquakes, happened in the 15th century when the famous decline of Angkor, classical Angkor, happened with the lost battle against the Siamese. And Angkor as an entire area was then abandoned. But again, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, we reproduce this narrative because we, we love archaeologists telling the stories. But of course, you cannot move from one capital to the other by hundreds of thousands of people just in one week. So it certainly took a lot of time. But when the capital moved southwards into maybe more secure areas, Angkor still stayed the major religious center of veneration, of temples, of pilgrimage, and of Buddhist activities. And this brings me to Angkor Wat, because in Angkor Wat, 
there was always, as far as we know, a living monastery a site. The site was still venerated very actively, is still also visible in stone in the history of the inscriptions, because part of the unfinished bas-reliefs of Angkor Wat were just accomplished in the 16th century. And it proves that the 16th century kings were still venerating this site. So you would see that the site was still active and was always active into the 19th century. It's, of course, a colonial European invention of sites got totally abandoned, totally in the jungle, and then rediscovered by European explorers. I mean, we have to know that this is all has to be a bit more nuanced. The Siamese invaders occupy Angkor Tom for a short time, but they eventually depart and the metropolis falls into ruin. The displaced Khmer court establishes a new capital around 200 miles to the south, which will develop into the modern-day Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh. The tropical rainforest moves quickly to take back land that had once been laboriously cleared to build Angkor. The irrigation system of water canals fills up with silt. The barais dry out. Rapidly growing roots of figs and cotton silk trees envelop the stones. A group of monks act as guardians of the sacred Angkor Wat. Over the centuries, there are many visitors to that temple including both Hindu and Buddhist pilgrims. And in the 16th century, the Khmer king, Ang Chan, is credited with rediscovering parts of the city during an elephant hunt, including, perhaps, the site of Angkor Tom. Later come Europeans. Portuguese trader Diogo de Coto finds his way to Angkor in 1550. His fellow countryman, Antonio de Madalena, visits 30 years later. De Madalena says Angkor Wat is like no other building in the world. He describes it as a feat of human genius. But even he fails to appreciate the sheer size of the city of Angkor, unable to envision the low-density metropolis that once dominated the plain. Even today, that is best appreciated from the air, or better still, from space. A satellite study by NASA found in 2007 that ancient Angkor may have sprawled over 350 square miles. Back on the ground, a young French explorer called Henri Mouot arrives by foot and horse cart in 1860. He's shown around the temple and ruins by local guides and monks. But in his writings about his travels, he claims that Angkor Wat must have been built by what he calls some ancient Michelangelo, and not the local Khmer people, whom he refers to as Barbarians. The Frenchman can't accept that the ancestors of local farming folk could be responsible for buildings as impressive as the pyramids of Egypt or the monuments of ancient Greece or Rome. He claims that Angkor must date to an earlier, more sophisticated civilization. When his reports reach Europe, his patrons at the British Royal Geographical Society popularize the idea that Muo discovered Angkor lost and forgotten in the forest. Also, his theory that the site could not have been built by the Khmer catches on. Now, so-called experts claim that Alexander the Great founded the city, or it was home to a lost tribe of Israel. More plausibly, but still incorrectly, others propose that Brahmin warriors from India built it. The Frenchman doesn't live long enough to clarify the fact that he didn't actually discover Angkor Wat 
while adventuring through the jungle. He dies of malaria soon after visiting. But his writings and intricate drawings of the temples are published posthumously, and they spark a craze for ancient Angkor. Back in France, the École des Beaux-Arts is the seat of learning for fine art and architecture in Paris. Located across the River Seine from the Louvre Art Museum, the school is arguably the most influential in the world. The 19th century Beaux-Arts movement idealizes the style and form of classical antiquity, traditionally the monuments of Greece and Rome, but now also Angkor. When Muo's drawings of the perfect symmetry and stylistic balance of Angkor Wat reach Paris, they are embraced by aficionados of the Beaux-Arts. The sight triggered some desire, a certain longing for the sight in the French, particularly French, mindset. The French were totally fascinated by the Angkorian civilization, doing the first sketch maps, you know, by archaeologists uh, with the symmetries of the temples and etc. And this was the period of Beaux-Arts architectural formation back in France in the, in the second half of the 19th century. So all archaeologists going to the site and later the conservators of Angkor were being trained architects by the Beaux-Arts school. And at Beaux-Arts school, you would be trained by, think about the Paris Opera House, uh, by symmetry, by a dramatic kind of massing of the building in terms of vertical extension. And this is the architectural affordance where, in a sense, in the French Imaginaire, Angkor Wat was the perfect bizarre building, aesthetically, a central passageway leading to the central core of a building, rising into the sky with different levels. And the central symbolic representation of the whole thing is the core elevated from the ground. And this is a perfectly bizarre imagination. During the 19th century colonial expansion, France claims a vast area of Southeast Asia, including what is now Cambodia. By this time, Angkor is no longer a capital or even a city. The temples still hold sacred importance, but the local people farm and live in the shadow of the ruins. The site is no longer the heart of a nation. But as colonial powers seek to justify their occupation, the significance of Angkor is heightened. France claims the need to conserve the site for the Cambodians to bring a civilizing influence. They want to rescue Angkor. Conservation becomes a colonial endeavor for the French government. They were not allowed to do very systematic restoration work until 1907. 1907 is the moment when not only the territory was coming over you know, to the French colony, but also when the Angkor Conservation Office, in a sense, was established. The major temple is still in place, partly decayed, so parts of the towers collapsed maybe, but still an active monastery. Whereas other parts were, yes, maybe partly in this jungle, a ruin kind of, you know, a status. So it was a mix between both. So by archaeological investigations and by mapping, they would justify their civilizing mission and political diplomatic missions by incorporating Angkor into the French hemisphere. They invented, in a sense, a strategy to already appropriate the site. This was cartography. This was also bringing some 
original artifacts from the site, illegally, we have to say. And they invented another strategy of appropriation through the medium of plaster casts. When establishing the first museums with Cambodian collections, you would have artifacts, original artifacts being brought over and put into place. But you would also have parts of the architectural surfaces represented through plaster casts. Large copies of the stone surfaces through moldings and took these moldings because you could put them in boxes and ship them back, very fragile but still working, and then recast the molds, negative molds, into positive stone surfaces. It is 1931, Paris. A woman is strolling through the crowds at the International Colonial Exhibition at the Bois de Vincennes. Heads turn as she passes. She cuts quite a figure in a two-piece zebra print suit with a pencil skirt and fitted jacket. Her outfit is topped off with a black straw boater against the May sunshine. She stops to greet an artist sitting at an easel. He is wearing a white suit and a casque colonial what English colonialists on safari might call a pith helmet. In front of him is a half-complete painting of Angkor Wat, the ancient temple that looms before them, right here in Paris. For the colonial trade fair, the organizers have constructed a life-size replica of the vast monument. It has been reproduced stone for stone and sprawls over 5,000 square meters. For people unable to take a trip to the French colonies of Indochina, the most famous temple of its empire has come to them. A line of elephants marches along the reconstructed causeway towards the temple. The crowds clap and cheer. But the woman is more interested in the artist's brushwork that captures the intricate towers, reminiscent of lotus flowers. He notices her and starts to explain that the five towers represent the five lands that are being subdued and civilized by the colonial mission. Cambodia, Cochin, China, Annam, Tonkin, and Laos. The woman listens politely and wishes him well, but quickly moves on. Because she has studied the history books and knows he is wrong. She approaches the great archway and soon beholds the five towers rising as tall as the towers of the Notre Dame Cathedral. The organizers can recreate and reinterpret Angkor, but she knows that the five towers of the temple represent the peaks of Mount Meru, the abode of the Hindu gods. The 1931 colonial fair in Paris is deemed a success, with over 33 million visitors during the six-month exhibition. Its display of exotic animals founds the zoo that remains in the Bois de Vincennes to this day. Its art gallery develops into a permanent museum of indigenous culture, now housed in the Museum of Quai Branly near the Eiffel Tower. But other exhibits from the 1931 colonial exposition do not fare so well. A Dutch pagoda of treasures brought over from Indonesia catches fire and burns to the ground, destroying the cultural artifacts inside. 
The reproduction of Angkor Wat also has a long-term impact. It influences conservationists, who then travel back to Cambodia to reconstruct the ruined parts of the real monument. So when it comes to restoration, you have to know that all restorers of Angkor, again, those are architects, most of them, had this ideal vision already seen as a one-to-one scale executed, super perfect temple site. And then traveled back to Angkor and said, well, we know how it looks. We already tested it. Let's execute it. The French colonial impact lasts through the Second World War until Cambodia gains independence in 1953. The first leader of an independent Cambodia, its former king, Norodom Sihanouk, is inspired by his ancient forefather, Suryavarman VII, the Builder King, who constructed the citadel of Angkor Thom. During the 1950s and 60s, Sihanouk instructs a massive building program of hospitals, schools, and roads what is often described as the best design in Asia. The result is a movement known as New Khmer Architecture, which mixes modernist ideas with Angkorian traditions such as moats and raised walkways. But peace in Cambodia is short-lived. Soon, it is dominated by the Khmer Rouge, a totalitarian communist regime that leads to famine and genocide. An estimated two million people die, a quarter of the entire population. Remarkably, for a nation torn apart by conflict, the ancient site of Angkor escapes serious damage. So 1970, we have to know, is that King Sihanouk was deposed by a Republican military coup. In 1975, the Khmer Rouge established a terror regime for just three or four years between 1975 and 79 with Pol Pot as the leader. And so the Khmer Rouge installed a regime with the narrative of coming back to ancient Khmer, Angkorian grandeur, abolishing cities, abolishing money, coming back to a pre-industrial agricultural society. And they tried to implement this in the most dramatic, violent, genocidal kind of manner. They did not touch upon the temples. They did not destroy the temples. They did not harm the temples. That is very important to know. So this Khmer Rouge period was not particularly impactful on the temples. Conservation is still a key consideration at Angkor. The ancient city is more popular than ever. At a site called Ta Prome, tree roots snake over the temple and create a magical image of ancient stones held in the wild clutches of nature. It's like an adventure story come to life, and it catches the eye of Hollywood filmmakers, who send the actor Angelina Jolie to Angkor to play the explorer Lara Croft. In 2001, the movie Tomb Raider does for Ta Prome what the French explorer Henri Mouot did for Angkor Wat 150 years earlier. Whereas Angkor attracted tens of thousands of visitors per year in the 1990s, after the film's release, the number rapidly increases to two and a half million tourists per year today. Angkor Wat is one of the most visited temple sites on the planet, suffering from this extensively and falling apart in all parts of the temple, as staircases, the park system, etc., is falling apart through all the tourism today by 2 million visitors per year. So you can imagine the very core 
a central pyramid of the temple was just meant to be visited once a year by the king. And now we have two million people climbing the staircase per year. So you can imagine the temple is suffering a lot. Angkor maintains a magical appeal. For foreign tourists, it is a fairy tale experience of tumble down jungle tombs where visitors can clamber over the sprawling roots of banyan trees and play at being Indiana Jones or Lara Croft. For historians, it is a site that is still giving up its secrets, sometimes from space. But for Cambodians, it is a reminder of their deep Khmer heritage, the heyday of the Diva Rajas, the God Kings. So you will see that the Angkor and Angkor Wat is the major important temple, was appropriated through very different regimes, from French colonialism to independent nation-state, to the Khmer Rouge, and then by UN, today into UNESCO World Heritage Park, through different regimes. And Angkor Wat always stayed in the very center of legitimization, because it's just the most astonishing largest temple in the whole area. Next time on Short History Of, we'll bring you a short history of Thomas Edison. Edison changes invention from the creation of new patented technology to a process of innovation. So conceptualizing a technology, inventing it through a process of research and development, including basic applied research um, that draws on scientific knowledge and scientific experimenters to a development stage that is directly connected to manufacturing and use. And so I think that's the way to think about Edison, the guy who taught us how to innovate in a sense, right? Transforming invention into innovation. That's next time.